This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, welcome to the Finding Holy podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales. I'm author of the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, and the forthcoming book called A Spacious Life. Here at the Finding Holy podcast, it is our aim to help you connect the dots to the big things that matter to your everyday holy life. You'll get to hear my guests' laundry routines too, because big things matter, but so does the laundry. As part of a short series on relationships in the pandemic, we're also talking about what is our relationship to ourselves? How has that changed? How has social media changed us? And even what does it look like to walk through doubt? So I am excited to welcome AJ Swoboda to the podcast today. He's an assistant professor of Bible, theology, and world Christianity at Bushnell University. He also leads a doctor of ministry program around the Holy Spirit and leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author of a number of books, including the award-winning book, Subversive Sabbath. He's married to Quinn and the proud father of Elliot. They live and work in Eugene, Oregon. And today we talk about his most recent book, After Doubt, how to question your faith without losing it. This is a great conversation. Listen in, friends, to my conversation with AJ. All right, friends, I'm here with AJ Swoboda. He is the author of numerous books, including what we're going to be talking today called After Doubt. And this is going to be a really great conversation. So I'm excited. Thanks for being here, AJ. Ashley, thanks for having me. It's a joy to join you. Thank you. So one thing I think as we were talking about doubt and the Christian faith, I think we want to back up maybe like 30,000 feet or back up, not just backwards back up, but is to think about how has the pandemic maybe changed even our relationship with ourselves, right? It's changed relationships amongst the church. You know, we're often gathering virtually. It's changed how we do community. It's changed families with people doing work and school in the home. And it's also changed our relationship with ourselves. And often, maybe even as Western people, we have a hard time understanding this concept of self-knowledge. You talk about it in your book very helpfully. But how do you think the pandemic, kind of as an entree to considering some of these themes, how has the pandemic changed our relationship with ourselves? Yeah, well, I was, uh, somebody uh, somebody uh, had, had shown me a, um, they, there was this video of a, I don't know who it was, how they got the video of it, but uh, it was a video somebody had taken from some helicopter or some drone mm-hmm. of uh, this, of mi- like thousands of Uyghur uh, Muslims being taken to concentration camps in China. Wow. And what they do, essentially in these concentration camps, although they're really re-education camps, they're, they're essentially where they send people to start thinking differently. They, of course, the, the number one thing that they do is they separate you from your family mm. and then give you a whole bunch of new ideas by having you watch all of these TV shows. I think the last year we've been in a massive re-education program. Mm. Uh, we have been separated from the people we know, mm-hmm. uh, the communities that nurture our souls. 
and we've been watching Twitter. <laughs> and it's it is it's been a re-education process. And I've mm. noticed you can feel it when people come back into community. Yeah, uh, you can feel that they're bringing they're they're bringing so much anxiety, fear, worry. I have a family member who is is a recovering alcoholic who told me that when when the pandemic hit, um, AA tried to keep going over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And they tried to have Zoom meetings where you did you did your 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 work, 12-step work. And she said it didn't work because there's mm-hmm. one thing that a Zoom call can't can't include, and that's smells. Mm-hmm. And and if somebody's really in recovery, you can tell if they're being honest or not by how they smell. Wow. There there's something lost when we can't smell each other. <laughs> yeah. And we we it's been too long since since we could, and I think we've been in a massive re-education pro- program and it's affected our souls in massive ways. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that you've seen, you know, students, family, community members kind of coming out, you know, hopefully we're coming out the other side of the pandemic, or at least there's some return to normalcy. How has these issues of doubt or deconstruction reared their heads in the last year, practically Mm -hmm. in the relationships that you're aware of? Well, in terms of, in terms of the the pandemic, when it hit last uh, spring, I teach at a university here in Eugene called Bushnell University. We are a, um, Christian Arts, Liberal Arts University, great, great school here in the heart of Eugene, Oregon, right next to the University of Oregon. What, last spring, when the when the pandemic hit, uh, it was really interesting to see the difference between my students' public reactions and private reactions. Mm. Because publicly, they were all bemoaning what they were going through. You know, I'm stuck at home and all this. But quietly, when I would have Zoom calls with them for office hours, mm-hmm. they would take a big sigh of relief and say, I'm so glad I get to just rest a little bit. Mm-hmm. I actually, I, having written a book about the Sabbath, I actually think part of our soul when it hit was really grateful for the pandemic Yep. because we got to slow down. We, we got off the train. But I think what happens when you remove yourself from the local, when you remove yourself from your surroundings and you spend all your time on social media, what happens is your heart and your mind are transported to situations in other places that don't that, that aren't, aren't the local. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, I think I'd be curious to know what Wendell Berry thinks about social media mm-hmm. because, you know, his whole thing has been, we, we actually, if we want to be healthy people, we actually need to focus on like the watershed that we live in. Yeah. The place that we are. And when you don't, weird things start happening to the human soul. Yeah. When you ask about deconstruction, when you can no longer be smelled <laughs> and all your information comes from people on social media who have a lot of emotions about a lot of things mm-hmm. you can't help but begin to question your own faith yeah. I, i'm gonna sound a little i'm gonna i'm gonna sound a little focus on the family here <laughs> but 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 it actually it actually turns out we become the people we spend our time with yeah and that if we spend all of our time binge watching or binge listening to podcasts that tell me i should undo my faith yeah. guess what i'm gonna do undo your faith yeah and if we don't have a rich tapestry of difference in our local congregations, right? In our local neighborhoods. Yeah. All we have is whoever's shouting loud at us, you know, yes. the loudest, right? On social media. And usually it's going to be from one or two the extremes. It's not going to be, hey, here's the slow work of beauty, truth, and goodness. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. What is more interesting to our flesh? What, what do they call it? Doom scrolling? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, when you spend all your time looking for the next thing that's going to destroy the world, spending your time listening to the loudest and most angry, what, what's more exciting to the flesh of that 
or slowly reading the nuanced articulations of Augustine in the City of God or <laughs> Henry Nouwen's uh, experience of serving the least of these. What's more interesting to the flesh? This is a great time to be the flesh. There's oh, no, sure. there's been no better time to be the Sarks <laughs> than now, the flesh than mm-hmm. now. So tell me why you think, like on Twitter, for instance, I see this stuff going through about everyone's like yelling at each other about the topic of deconstruction. What's that about? <laughs> They're all yelling at each other. There is an, indeed a lot of caps locking going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what's happening right now is there's there's been a, a space given for people to ask real questions. Yeah. I think in the past, those questions were were not able really to be talked about. You couldn't talk about them in, in general, but you certainly couldn't talk about them with the people maybe you went to church with. But now you have like a space to talk about them. Yeah. And I celebrate that. We need places to talk about our, our, our faith crises and the things that we're walking through. I think that what's going on now is that there is what I think is healthy deconstruction and really mm-hmm. deconstruction. And the difference between the two is this. There is a group of people out there that are saying, you know what? I love Jesus with all my heart. And I was handed some really stupid ideas about who Jesus was that have nothing to do with the Bible. Yep. That have nothing to do with God that are wrong and I'm done with them, but I love Jesus. There's a group of people that are actually deconstructing because they want God more than they want ideology. Mm. That is healthy. Mm-hmm. But there is a dark side of deconstruction that's afoot right now, which is not somebody saying, I love Jesus and I want to do whatever it takes to follow him. And I will strip away all ideology to get there. There is another side of people who are saying, I'm really just tired of having a book telling me how to live my life. Yeah. And really, I just want to have sex with who I want to have sex with and right. do what I want to do. And I'm tired of having somebody to submit to. Yeah. And that That is a, they're both happening under the yeah. same name. Yeah. Dark deconstruction and glorious Jesus deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And no wonder we're all confused because yeah. on the conservative side, the assumption is all deconstruction is bad. When in reality, there's a whole generation of people who, because they're in deconstruction, are actually trying to find God. They're right. hungry for Jesus. And then liberals don't like the deconstruction conversation because they see conservatives as saying, well, actually, there's boundaries to this. Right. And we have to be cautious. So nobody, we're all not talking to each other. It's like, yeah. This whole, yeah. But I mean, if you don't like deconstruction, then you probably shouldn't be a Protestant. Right. Exactly. Uh, reformers yeah. <laughs> would be your because quintessential deconstruction. You, you literally, your, your tradition is formed on a man who nailed 95 theses on a door in Germany and said that the way the church exists is not gospel. Right. And that heart is so beautiful and good. Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference between nailing something on the wall of the church and burning the church down. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a, there's a difference between those two. Yes. But yeah. All the same. We are in a tradition where even Jesus deconstructed mm-hmm. when he says in Matthew five, six and seven, you've heard it said, now I say to you, he is deconstructing religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say, I think yeah. there's healthy and dark deconstruction. I think that's a helpful way to think about it, especially if we're like, oh, I'm scared of that word or, or like, I'm just going to jump in with both feet to that word and really not care where I get to at the other end of everything. How do you approach kind of this tendency, maybe in your various roles, like, you know, you've been in pastoral ministry, you're a professor and you're a father. So what does it look like to approach the task of deconstruction from each of those roles? Yeah, I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it the the Jesus test. 
he said you could tell uh, you could tell good preaching from bad preaching. You could tell kingdom from ideology. You could tell the church from social club based on one test. Does it point ex to exclusive obedience to Jesus or not? And if it does not point to exclusive obedience to Jesus, it's a social club. Mm -hmm. If it does not point to exclusive obedience to Jesus, then it is not gospel, it's advice. Uh, if it does not point to exclusive obedience to Jesus, uh, then it is ideology and not kingdom. And right now, we are so tempted. Man, it's, it's the, <laughs> it, is, it is the sirens crying off both sides of the boat. Yeah. The sirens of ideology that are calling us to the right and the left. Yeah. And I think in this moment in history, I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but this is a bit of a Bonhoeffer moment mm -hmm. where we have got to crucify our desires to be primarily formed by Fox News or NPR. Yeah. We need to come back to Jesus. Amen. If, if I ever get to the point where Jesus has less authority in my life than Tucker Carlson, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. If I get to the point where Jesus has less authority in my life than my Enneagram number, I'm mm -hmm. off. Yep, that'll preach. <laughs> and so how do you, you know, as you're leading your students through some of these challenges, as you think about raising children, what do we do with this amorphous space? Maybe as adults with like our prefrontal cortex is fully fused, we can kind of <laughs> have a little bit of sense of like, I'm a little bit more stable. Like my emotions don't define me. You know, how I feel about God doesn't necessarily mean that God is this way. So how maybe on the other side, those of us who are approaching middle age and middle age, how do we help those who are younger? Even people who are younger on Twitter or Instagram, yes. maybe not even just college students or our own children, begin to kind of put some guardrails around this question of doubt or to be hopeful in our doubt even. What might that look like? Um, I, I think two two immediate things come to mind, but but I, 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 I should preface by what I'm going to say by saying anybody that prefaces any conversation like this with two points is a liar. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but for the sake of space and time, two, two things immediately come to mind. My greatest gift to my son and my greatest gift to my students is my constant desire and willingness to be humbled and flattened on my face. Mm. And I do my greatest leadership when I'm honest about the ways I've been wrong. Mm -hmm. And that goes against every... Every single leadership book I've ever been handed mm -hmm. uh, in the evangelical world, in the in our world, mm -hmm. because we've been taught that leadership is leading with our strengths. Yeah. And for me, uh, I I just think Paul is better than our leadership books. We lead with our our weakness. Yeah. And you know the gospels, the gospel of Mark. <laughs> Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus. Um, whose gospel is he writing? He's writing Peter's story. Mm -hmm. What does the gospel of Mark tell us more about than any other gospel? The denial of Peter. Mm -hmm. There's no gospel that's more honest about his downfalls. Yeah. Here's a point. We preach the gospel through our failures. Yep. I give the gift of, of my failures to my students and my son. Mm -hmm. And I say, I'm sorry. And I was wrong to my students and my son more than I should, because I think that that reveals that I recognize I'm not the way, the truth, and the life. And I think the second thing, and I learned this from my friend Paul Pastor, 
who um, brilliant writer, yeah. farmer, agrarian, is the gift of spiritual consent. And what I mean by spiritual consent is this. When I have a student or my son ask me a really big question about God, and they sit in my office and they go, you know, I love God, I love the Bible, but I, man, what do I do with women in the Bible? What do I do with hell? What do I do with, and they say the thing, my initial response is to just want to go into full-on apologetics mode. And I've learned that that doesn't work because they sense that I'm just trying to keep them under my wing rather than give them truth. And what I do in that moment, I've learned that the greatest gift I can give them is before I offer any response to look them in the face and say, thank you for your question. Mm. It means the world to me. How are you inviting me to respond? Mm. Because sometimes they just need to be heard. Mm. Sometimes they need a response, but I don't want to assume that they need my apologetics response. I had this young woman years ago who had been raised in the church tell me that she was a part of a church community, really conservative evangelical church. There were no boundaries in her family, no boundaries. And she says, you know, as a kid, the way I knew there were no boundaries is my mom would just barge into my room. She would never knock. Uh My mom would always barge in. She'd never knock. So she goes off to college. Guess what she does? She deconstructs her whole faith and then has a kid. And when you have a kid, you really need God again. So she comes back to church mm-hmm. and she starts reading for the first time in years. She starts reading the book of Revelation and she comes across mm. the line where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Mm. And for the first time, she was like, I can believe. And here's why. Because <laughs> I realized that Jesus had really good boundaries. Hmm. And he's not, he doesn't barge in. I want to hand my son the faith, but I want to hand my son the faith as an act of faith. I don't want to force it on him. And I want to hand it to him by the hands of a guy who's really broken and screwed up a lot. And I want to knock. I don't want to barge in. Mm -hmm. I think when we do it that way, then there's never a point down the road where they can say to their friends, I was never able to be me. Mm -hmm. I was never, I, I, it was forced on me. So there's a tension. We don't, we don't want to force feed. We want to offer it as a faith. Mm -hmm. Get better at knocking. And I think really too, then that that's, you know, that is what you're saying, that posture of humility, right? Where we realize that we cannot control, right? You say in your book, great. One of the, the gifts of the spirit, right? Is self-control, not control. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so great. But right, because when we desire to control, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid of losing something. And we if can do that parent, online or in parenting or, you know, so many different. In the church. Every parent, if you got a kid right now <laughs> and you're looking at what's happening in our world, you're like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a whole culture of Christian parents who are not passing the gospel onto their kids because they don't want it to be rejected. Yep. And then there's this other side that are like, okay, I'm going to control your life and I'm going to send you these perfect Christian institutions where you're never going to have to entail anything. I wonder if when I actually share with my son my struggles with following Jesus, if I'm actually inviting him to have his own struggles. Mm-hmm. And he can see it's possible to follow Jesus with a limp. Yeah. He's going to have someone else talk about it. Why just not let it be me? I'd rather he find out that stuff from me than you two. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's great. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership at Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So 
Whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. What's your hope, AJ, for the church to be a place? What would it look like? Maybe dream with us a little bit for the church to be a place where deconstruction is welcomed, where doubt is welcomed, but that there still is a faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus. So not just like, hey, we're just all skeptics here, but, you know, to actually hold truth very strongly in one hand and love of neighbor in the other hand, so that we're able to actually have these conversations in the church, in the local church. John 20, the the disciple, sadly known for doubt, the the New Testament never gives him the name Doubting Thomas, but in history, Mm -hmm. antiquity comes down to us as the, the, the Doubting Thomas. Um, in, in John 20, Jesus has appeared to the other disciples, but not him. <laughs> I'm now thinking of that experience of what it's like to miss out uh, the number of, you know, w- when other people have experiences of Jesus and you haven't had it, the, the jealousy that can arise from that. Yeah, yeah. Why do other people get to have kids? Why do other people get to have, get married? Why do other people get to have this stuff? And it has happened to me. I think often our greatest points of doubt are places where, we see other people have gotten things that we haven't gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, so this is out and he comes back to the disciples and they tell him, dude, you missed it. It was incredible. <laughs> and then, and then the, the John, it, it's so remarkable how John relays the story because he says that Jesus waits a whole week before he shows up to show Thomas's body. Jesus does not in a resurrect state here. Like, Oh my gosh, there's a disciple who's like shaky. He allows a whole week to go by mm. before before showing up and he does show up and shows him his body. What strikes me about that one week period is two things. It strikes me first that Thomas, who was doubting, remained in the community of the faithful for a whole week. Yeah. For a whole week he stayed. And that speaks to hope, perseverance, grit, Mm -hmm. endurance. It's what we need a generation of people to do who have questions about God is for God's sake, Stop taking your questions to the internet. Just keep bring them to us. Yeah. Let's do this together. Stop replacing pastors with podcasts. Amen. And I'm not belittling the importance of a podcast. No, I'm married to a pastor. So yeah, yes. I'd much rather they get their information from him. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. When you're a pastor and your your leadership and love of people is being outsourced to some talk by somebody in North Carolina who thinks they know everything about what you need to know. It's so you're replaced. It's, I love that Thomas doesn't replace yeah. the community of the faithful. And I love that the faithful 10 made room in their midst for a guy with questions. Mm-hmm. They didn't send them to some alpha group or some celebrate recovery group. They didn't like send them off to the group with the weird questions. 
they made room. I mean, they took yeah. June 22 literally. I mean, it hadn't been written yet, right. but be merciful to those who doubt. By the way, do that unless you know someone who's doubting. So it implies that they're in your midst that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. This, by the way, so liberals and conservatives. Yeah. Here's what conservatives do. Conservatives say, okay, when people who doubt come into the church with questions, they say, not always, but they say, you're you're not believing. You're clearly, you're you're not submitting to Jesus or something like that. Yep. Failing to recognize that it takes guts to bring your questions to church. And thank God Thomas didn't go to some churches where he would have been told you're a failure. Because it turns out Thomas goes to India as the first missionary and leads a whole generation of people to Jesus. And if you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, it's because mm. there have been a thousand years of Christians as a result of Thomas, the doubter, going and preaching. So we've got to stop the conservatives. Here's what I'm saying to my conservative friends. Yep. Stop seeing doubters as a problem. Yeah. There are future missionaries. Mm. And what liberals do is as as equally damnable. Yep. Is we see doubters and deconstructors coming to the church. And then we water down historic Christianity to fit their experience. Yeah. And on one side, the bar is raised too high and we don't have room for sinners. And on the other hand, the bar is raised to the level of the sinners. Yeah. And what we need is we need to do, you, every parent knows how to do this. When your kid, my son's nine, when he starts playing basketball, the hoop is too high for him. So what do you do? Some parents do the wrong thing and lower the hoop to make it easy. That's the wrong thing. (laughs) No, you teach your kid to shoot baskets at a hoop that's too high. And from time to time, you lift them up so they can learn to dunk with their hands up on the rim. Mm -hmm. We We need to hold up as high as we can the holiness and the call of God. And we need to pick people up to help get there. Mm-hmm. But for mm-hmm. God's sake, let's not lower God to our level. He yeah. is holy mm-hmm. and righteous and just and beyond us. And he is worthy of our worship and he is to be revered and awed. Mm-hmm. He's not our buddy. There's a guy named, um, who many listeners have probably heard, John Goldengay, who teaches, who taught at Fuller Seminary, his Old Testament theologian there, um, who recently retired. And he has this idea that he says plays out through the entire Bible. So this idea, he calls it ideal and condescension. Mm -hmm. And the idea is this, that in the Bible, the Bible is full of God's ideals Mm -hmm. and they are just way too much for us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God's ideal for holiness, God's ideal for love, God's ideal for service, God's ideal for church, Sabbath, you name it. They're all Mm -hmm. too high for us. Yeah. But that's intentional because God created something that we can't, we can't do. It's too, the ideal is too high. But he says this, he says, every time in the Bible, God's ideal is too high. Whenever someone tries <laughs> to do what God says, God always condescends to their level. Mm-hmm. But we have to try. If we cut out either side, liberals lower the ideal and conservatives don't see God as coming to our level. The minute we don't do both, we miss something. Mm-hmm. That's enough on that. That's enough. Yes. On- yes. So connect the dots for us a little bit. What does that look like? You know, you're in a church or you're in a neighborhood or you see your internet friend deconstructing on Twitter, Instagram. What do we do? How do we, I mean, I think it really only happens in communities, not just like yes. two individuals, but how do we keep both the ideal and the condescension? Yep. What does it look like? I'll tell you what it's not. I don't think the answer is that there's a bunch of people out there deconstructing 
And what they need is an answer to ease all their deconstruction. Right. I don't believe that's true. And I can tell you that I don't believe that's true because more often than not, when students make it into my office, they do so because they shared their same question about faith with their parents and their parent just tried to send them a YouTube clip or said, you need to read this book. Yeah. And what's going, I can tell you exactly what's going on. The kid is coming to their parent and saying, I got this question about faith. And their parent is like, well, let me give you the thing that's going to fix it. Yeah. Failing to recognize that their kid actually doesn't need an answer. They're looking for you. They're looking for a person to be with in the midst of their questions. I'm all for answers. I'm an academic. I believe there are answers. The truth is out there. Thank God X-Files taught me that years ago. <laughs> the truth is out there. But deconstruction is an itch of the heart, not of the mind. Mm -hmm. And I think more often than not, people walking through this really need exactly what Job needed. Job didn't get any answers in Job. He got God's presence. Yep. And what people need today is they don't need all our answers. They need our presence. And it turns out when you walk with people enough, you'll get to the answers, but you do it in the right way. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning of the book, After Doubt, I talk about a young man named Phil who um, completely deconstructed his faith. He was from middle America, conservative middle America, deconstructed his faith. And I walked with this guy for about five years. And today he is following Jesus and more in love with God than he ever, ever could have imagined. Mm -hmm. And he is now leading a small group of three or four of his friends who deconstructed their faith. And they are all coming back to Jesus. Mm, beautiful. Here's the point. That is five years of way too many coffee appointments, way too many times in my home, way too many late night calls, exhaustion, tired, cuss words, you name it. Yep. But five years of walking together, that speaks volumes of love way more than a YouTube clip. And what people need is to be shown that they are loved and worthy worthy in their questions. Mm -hmm. It's hard as a pastor because you can't take all your time to meet with a hundred people or deconstruct them and you shouldn't, but you should have one or two. <laughs> Find one or two that are walking through what Eugene Peterson called the badlands. Find one or two people who are walking through the badlands. Find one or two Thomases mm -hmm. and just stick with them for five years. I'll tell you this, when you do that long enough, they become missionaries. That's beautiful and so hopeful. Because often I think when we are walking with someone like that, it's hard to write from, from their perspective. A lot of folks, you know, we have deconverted friends that have then just left relationship, not only left the church, but right left relationship. And it takes a lot of courage, both not only on, you know, your part, but also on the one who is deconstructing and disentangling to stay in relationship. There aren't a lot of places where we can hold that intention. Especially if you've been hurt by the people whose faith you've deconstructed or uh, who you've deconverted from. That is, Ashley, the, you, nobody, I, I've, I've been a Christian now for 20, Lord, how old am I? 20, 30, <laughs> 24, 20 years. And I have heard a hundred sermons on the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. I have never heard anybody teach on why in the world did the younger son leave? He had a great dad. Mm -hmm. He clearly had a great farm. He had a great inheritance coming his way. Did he leave? And it's not until he comes back after his years of parting that he realized what the problem is. The problem was the older brother. Hmm. I think the I think the prodigal left because the older brother. Hmm. There is a generation of people out there who are running away from the father because the older sibling really didn't represent the father very well. Yeah. And when you have run away. Mm -hmm. It is hard to recognize that your healing to the father's house coincides 
coming back in touch with the people that first hurt you. It's very painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it was Tim Keller in his, one of his sermons on the prodigal son or his book was talking about, you know, that, you know, Christ as our elder brother is the one who comes to the far off country to rescue us. And it's the elder brother, right? In the, in the parable who should have, that was his, his responsibility, right? To care for the younger brother. And he doesn't. So maybe something that is a good call for us to our doubting brothers and sisters. And a call and a very painful call <laughs> <Because> <laughs> when Saul converts to Jesus in Acts 9. Yeah, his conversion to Jesus is one and the same with reconciliation with Ananias in the church. He has to go to Damascus and be part of the church, he has to go and be touched. And often, our greatest point of healing is often at our greatest point of pain. We have to return to the place where we've been most, most wounded, mm-hmm. but God does his greatest, greatest work in that. So I, here's what I want to say. If you ran away from the father because some Christian made the father look really bad, can I just say the father is too good to get just the older brother in the house? That's a bad reason to give up the father. He's just too good. Mm-hmm. Come back. Yeah, there's a bunch of Christians out there, myself included, that are screwed up. <laughs> yeah, we're out there. Yeah. Okay, but so are you. Let's be screwed up together. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with a word for it. We'll call it the church. <laughs> AJ, help us understand, you know, how can we be hopeful about the church as a place to welcome doubters and to humble us older brother types, right? Who think we have it together. Or we push God off with our knowledge and great answers. I think if I could, I think I'll, I'll close with, I think the Bible is just too good to, the, in Isaiah, Isaiah, the, one of the most repeated phrases in Isaiah is that God is the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. It's repeated over and over and over again in the book. It's one of the most repeated themes uh, in, 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 the, in the prophetic literature of Isaiah. And I, I just have always struck, A, when that was said, that was said at a time when Israel was being completely unfaithful to God. Um, and the prophet Isaiah is calling Israel back. And it strikes me secondarily that God is in a scandalous way, willing to put the holiness of his name on the name of Israel. It's the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus is the Holy One of the church who is broken, wrong, unfaithful, shattered, but God puts his holiness on her. You know, I I think it was years ago I heard Augustine had once said about the church, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. God is disgusted with sin and in love with his people. And if God is willing to identify with a broken people, shouldn't I? Yeah. And that's hard to hear, especially if you've been wounded, you've been traumatized. It's hard to hear that. But God does love his bride. And I need to remember that if somebody beat my bride up, they'd be in big trouble with me. Mm-hmm. If I beat Jesus's bride up, there's hell to pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you want to just leave our doubting listeners with a word? You're awesome. You're not a failure. And your questions matter and you matter. And for any Christian that made you feel like junk for having questions, they were wrong. And if you've been shamed for struggling, they were wrong. God loves you and the gospel matters to you. And God can save people who have questions. Stop thinking you're the only person that's asked really hard questions. Mm-hmm. We got 2000 years of people who've asked really hard questions. You're not alone. You're mm-hmm. not unique. You're not special. <laughs> uh, there, we've got 2000 years of people who've asked these questions. 
come, let's do it together. That's a great invitation. Well, as we conclude, AJ, I like to ask all my listeners about their laundry routines. So what is your laundry routine? Generally speaking, um, my wife and I have the habit of waiting until the laundry basket is so full that it can barely hold like one more sock at the top before it falls over. And when we carry the laundry to the laundry room from our bedroom and it's not tipping over, we're trying to keep it from all falling and putting it in the laundry. I'm learning as a 40 year old that God doesn't just anoint preaching. He anoints mundane housework Amen. and the work of doing dishes and laundry as a mm-hmm. man who's an, a three on the Enneagram and trying to achieve and da, 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 mm-hmm. da, there's nothing more sacred than mismatched socks and dirty <laughs> underwear and accidentally putting a red shirt and a bunch of whites <laughs> finding God in the midst of smelly laundry. And Jesus yeah. cares about laundry because he folds his laundry when he breaks. So I, I know. I love that. I was like, I, I was pausing over that the other day too. I was like, he, he takes the time to fold his grave clothes. I kind of yeah. love that. It's obedience. It's a point of obedience. We have to do it. Yeah. Well, thank you, AJ, for your time. Thank you for your great book and your ministry. It's been an honor to chat with you. Thank you. Your gift, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that lovely and gentle conversation about what does it look like to actually wrestle with our doubts, to consider our doubts, and to do that within the context of God's people. As we conclude this short little series on pandemic relationships, I want to leave you with one small step, and it's this. Maybe spend 10 minutes. Either you're waiting in your car to pick up your kids, or maybe it's 10 minutes before you go to sleep. Maybe it's 10 minutes before everyone wakes up in your home. Take 10 minutes, set the timer, and simply be quiet before God, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum of belief, and write down some of those doubts in that 10 minutes. What are your fears? Maybe you've been hurt and wounded Write them down in 10 minutes. And then the second part of your small step is to bring some of those into a larger community. AJ reminds us how God's church, his bride, she is often wrong and pigheaded and hard to deal with. We know, of course, that we wound people and are wounded in community, but we are also healed in community too. So bring some of those doubts to a few safe people that you already have a relationship with in the church. Let's work through these things together. We don't have to simply disagree or walk away and find ourselves without hope because God and his people are bigger than our feelings and our confusions and even our doubts and fears. Friends, I hope you will share this episode with a friend. Maybe someone has has been hurting and needs to hear AJ's wisdom. Pick up a copy of his book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. It's linked directly in the show notes. This is a tremendous resource for you if you find yourself in a place of doubt, as well as if you are ministering to those who do. A few quick things. Firstly, I want to give you a free book. All you need to do is go to iTunes, click the Finding Holy podcast, scroll down past some of the first episodes, and there is a ratings and review section. You click write a review, write one sentence about what you love, and then you'll get a chance to win AJ's book or one of these great books. 
Secondly, we are going to have a best of series coming up this summer. I can't wait to share with you maybe something new or new to you that you haven't heard yet that will be so perfect for your summer listening. And lastly, I am really excited to do a fun little series this summer later on before we start our next season all about, you guessed it, the laundry. Because friends, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu slash podcast.